Welcome to the Get a Job, Here's How podcast, the practical how-to guide for women returning to the workforce, recent grads, and those looking to get the job of their dreams. Now, here's the founder of the Back to Business Women's Conference and your host, Katie Dunn. Welcome to the Get a Job, Here's How podcast. I'm Katie Dunn, founder and CEO of Back to Business and your host. I'm here to help you get a job, and I'm not just going to share advice on our topic in each episode. I'm going to tell you exactly how to do it, because here's how are two of my favorite words. It's get a job, here's how. Let's get started. Welcome listeners to the Get a Job, Here's How podcast. I'm really excited about our guest today. We have Steve Dalton with us. He's the author of The Two-Hour Job Search. He's also a program director for the Daytime Career Services at the Fuqua School of Business at Duke. Steve and I have known each other for a little while, having both worked in the MBA world. He's got an amazing reputation for having written this book and doing great work with students for many years. So welcome to the show, Steve. It's a pleasure to be here. Awesome. I've got my copy of the book right here. I actually, as a career coach, I've had it on my desk for many years. It's that good. You just recently came out with a updated version. So why don't you sort of give us the overview of the two-hour job search and tell us what's new in the updated edition. Sure. The the new edition just came out April 20th, so it's hot off the presses. I waited eight years to write a second edition. I'm a strong believer that if you don't have anything new to say, don't say anything at all. After eight years, I've had thousands of additional iterations of practice on refining this procedure, and I'm excited to share that with the world this year. In a nutshell, the two-hour job search zooms in on the squishy middle part of the job search that everybody likes to get very vague around, which is that connective tissue between saying, I know what I want to do, and walking into your first interview. It seems to me like that's the universal challenge that most people are up against. It's not doing well in interviews. It's not getting a resume together. It's getting an interview in this modern day and age. So essentially what my book does is it turns this concept of networking for an interview into a recipe. And I use the word recipe very specifically I do not do tips. I do not give lists of ingredients because how do you replicate a list of ingredients if you're trying to make lasagna? No, you need a recipe. So I give exact instructions for navigating this overwhelming world of networking in the job search with a purpose of getting an interview. And the way that that happens in the two-hour job search is we split networking into its three component parts. The first part is prioritizing the universe of all possible targets to put them into a logical subset and order of attack. The second is contact. How do we re- who do we reach out to and how do we reach out to them to maximize the chance that we find people who are likely to be sympathetic? And then third, we convince those people to become allies of ours. How do we take a stranger and turn them into an advocate on demand and over time such that they will help us get an interview? Fantastic. There's a lot to unpack there. We're going to dig into those steps. But talk to us first about the title, the two-hour job search. Um, because as we all know, job search takes a lot of time. Sadly, the, the two-hour job search will not get you a job within two hours. Uh, so that's, the, that's <laughs> the bad news. The good news is that another common misconception is that the two-hour job search consists of two hours of effort per day. And that's just definitely not true. Nothing in the two-hour job search is arbitrary. You will have entire days off where there's simply nothing more you could be doing. You're, you just need to wait for someone to respond. And if they don't respond, you follow up with them. And maybe today's not that day. Everything is programmed in this process. So the two hours in the two-hour job search refers to the amount of time it takes you to start your search from scratch and finish for the day. So if it is noon and you said, Steve, you're fired, start looking for a job right now. By 2 p.m., I would be done for the day. Any more effort would be extraneous, but any less effort would be insufficient. And in that two hours, I could brainstorm a logical list of employers that... I can put into a logical order of attack based on three pieces of data, which are easy to find and predictive of success. And I can draft outreach emails to people who are likely to be sympathetic contacts at those organizations and send them off. At that point, I just need people to respond before I can make any further progress. 
Okay. So I love that this is a system. Like you said, it's a recipe. It's very precise at every stage of the game in here. You've got, you've got my next move laid out and you know when I need to do it. I think as a job secret, that's really comforting because it's a whole big wide world of job seeking and there is no shortage of job search advice out there, right? And you can, you can spend all day just reading the advice without actually doing anything. So I think that's one of the things I've always loved about your book, Match, is that it's, it's very systematic. It's step by step. Do this now. Your next move is on this day, and here's what you're going to do. And by the way, here's the template for the email that you can send, and here's why it looks like this. So there's so much to love about this. I really like that. But tell us about what is it that is so comforting about having a system for job search? It it really doesn't make any sense, this whole concept of giving job seekers tips and telling them to figure out what works best for them. And that's so painfully overly common in the job search advice space. Here's 50 tips, go figure it out. In reality, aren't career experts in a much better position to curate all of that advice into a usable format? It's not really been done before. The two-hour job search was kind of weird in it, the space for taking a stand, for saying, do exactly this, rather than being noncommittal and saying, here's lots of options and, and trial and error your way through it. When people are overwhelmed, as, as so many job seekers are, when their ability to provide for themselves and their loved ones is put in jeopardy, you're not looking for creative solutions. You're not looking for a best possible solution. You're looking for one actual solution. So there are job seekers, no doubt, out there who prefer tips, who want to find their own way. But so many job seekers out there just need to make progress quickly. And if you need to get something done quickly, you're not looking for ideas, you're looking for instructions. The the two-hour job search was born out of a very specific student that I worked with back in 2008 during the early financial crisis Bear Stearns was acquired from J.P. Morgan. She was an international student who lost her. uh, J.P. Morgan canceled all the offers. So she lost her offer, lost her visa. None of the other banks were hiring because they knew there was a crisis on the the horizon. And she came into my office devastated and asked me what to do. And I started giving her all the tips that I'd gotten when I was a student. And she said, okay, how exactly do I come up with a list of targets? How exactly do you do what? I, I didn't understand the question. Like she was actually the dream scenario, though. She was willing to do exactly what I told her. I just needed to have something exact to tell her. And that was not on her to figure out. That was on me to figure out. And I knew in that moment I was selling snake oil. I either had to answer that question for real or I had to find a new line of business. And it took years to come up with something exact and so, so much trial and error. It's important that someone who doesn't have access to a business school education or a career coach can still access a set of instructions that will help them predictably land interviews over time. And that's really what I'm proud of in in this approach, taking away people's decision anxiety. There's a really interesting study that shows that when you are offered a chocolate out of a box of six, you're happier with your decision than when you're offered a chocolate out of a box of 30, because you either like nuts or you don't. You You prefer dark chocolate to light chocolate. You can be confident you're making the best possible decision when you have fewer choices. I want to take it even further. I want to give people one recipe. It may not make their favorite lasagna, but it will make lasagna. Whether you live in San Francisco, New York, or Paris, that you follow the steps in this order and it will work predictably. That's fantastic. So you've, as a career coach, you've been in this great position. You, you get a X number of hundreds of new students every year going through the business school at Fuqua. And so you've been able to really see what works and refine the system as you go along. So you didn't just dream this up. You've been living this system for many years and many thousands of students, right? Yes. And if anything changes, I have 500 students who let me know the minute it happens. (laughs) Uh, They do not hold back. Absolutely not. And I'm so appreciative for that. Yeah, that's fantastic. And you you have a really active LinkedIn users group too, where people ask you questions, you are actually responding to them and giving advice, referring to the steps in the process and the system. And that's great. I, I'm in that group and I've always enjoyed seeing the questions and you are very consistently sticking to the process. It works, you know it works. Um, I love that. It's very important to me 
to have a foot in both worlds. Um, I want to be close to the student experience. I, I don't want to just do one. I, I don't have the time to do one-on-one coaching on top of my full-time job, on top of writing, on top of speaking about the two-hour job search on the road. So the LinkedIn group allows me a chance to answer questions from average readers who get stuck on something or face a new scenario or just want to see what questions other people have. There's over 5,000 of us in the group. It's been a really fun community to foster and it helps me help the most people I possibly can. That's great. You probably get a lot of cool feedback in there too. People probably let you know when they land a job and that's got to be fun to read. There's a lot of that and so many great ideas come from the group too of just different perspectives and different ways of trying things. If you have a thousand people follow the same recipe, somebody's going to come up with an idea that makes the lasagna better for everybody. And that's really what's so fun about teaching a process rather than teaching a bunch of tips that can't possibly be replicated between users. Uh-huh. Fantastic. So as far as replicating, your sort of subject base has been MBA students, but does this process work for any job seeker? The user base started with MBA students, but very quickly it branched out beyond that. There are job seekers of all types with college degrees, without college degrees. Transition veterans have found the two-hour job search process to be particularly helpful because you go from an environment of total infrastructure to one of no infrastructure it's really helpful being having exact instructions to follow to help you bridge this gap where you don't necessarily know the secret handshakes and conventions of the business world. So it's mostly business people, but not all. It works for engineers. It works for health professionals. It really does run the gamut with the only exceptions being those who are seeking tenure track teaching positions, PhDs and uh, MD level medicine. Okay, great. So I work with code school graduates and it works for us too because uh, we've definitely been been talking through the process. Let's talk through the two-hour job search system. And you mentioned three steps. The first step being the lamp list and gathering that list of companies that are going to make good targets for you. How do we get started with that? The analogy I like to draw here is, is TV's The Bachelor, which is awfully awful television that's incredibly entertaining, but it illustrates an important concept. It's much better to be the bachelor than one of the 25 contestants. Regardless of the gender flip on it, you want to be the one, you don't want to be the 25. And so many job seekers, when they approach the job search, take on the mentality of one of the 25, except they're one of 500 who apply online, kind of knowing they never are going to hear back, but not knowing what else to do. So they do it anyway. And if it doesn't work, they do it more. And it's just, it's a brutal way to live. Just like being one of 25 contestants on a reality TV show built around the one, The Bachelor, it would be soul crushing for a contestant. It just, it's dehumanizing. So it's important to realize that they, that the employers are really the commodity. It's not the job seeker. So the first step of this process is to brainstorm a large consideration set of possible employers. So I give job seekers, four different methods for brainstorming potential employers with the goal of coming up with at least 40 in 40 minutes. The next step, now that we've got this list of potential employers, we want to use data rather than our own intuition to put them into a logical order of attack. The danger of not using data, of just using intuition is you prioritize the same companies that everybody else thinks of when they think I need to do a job search in X space. So the three pieces of data, LAMP actually gets its name for the four columns of of the list itself. L is for the list of employers. The first column of data is A, which is A for advocacy. For a lot of people, that's alumni. But for transitioning veterans, for example, that would be fellow veterans. So that's just a simple yes or no column. That's a proxy for the likelihood of finding a sympathetic contact, whether because they're familiar with the the, the benefit of your brand because they went to your school or they came from the same background as you. Or maybe it's just the organization's own uh, willingness to pay the premium necessary to attract someone with your skills, your advanced degree, or your background into their organization. The M is for motivation, and that's a proxy for your own pain tolerance. Because in this process, you will have to ask for informational meetings or conversations with strangers a lot. And more often than not, you're going to get ignored. It hurts a lot more to get ignored by people, by companies that you're not that motivated by than by your dream employers. So we need to capture that. How much pain tolerance do you have for reaching out to this organization knowing full well the first person or two or three that you reach out to is not going to help you? And the final data point is P for postings. That's just an approximation of how actively is this company 
recruiting online right now? Just a one, two, or a three. So if they're looking for people exactly like you, if you could theoretically apply for or interview for and accept that job right now, that would be a three out of three. It's a perfect match. That's time sensitive. If you have any interest in that job, you need to get an advocate there quickly to advocate for you to get an interview. Because largely by the time it shows up online, they already have a few people they know and like for that role. So it's almost too late. So if you want that role, you need to move now. If they're looking for people like you, but maybe more senior or maybe in a slightly different function, that would be a two out of three. It's somewhat urgent, but not as urgent as an exact fit. And then if they're not doing any hiring online, you can rest assured that people like you are not flooding that company with interest proactively, requesting informational meetings. So you have a little time and room to work with. And then when all the data is down, you just sort the list, see if it looks right to you. And if not, you can tweak it from there. That's when intuition becomes really important. You want to make sure your top top five employers are really your top five employers that you're most motivated to reach out to. And then we move into the second stage of the process. And the second stage of the process involves finding advocates inside the company? Yep. Identifying what I call starter contacts. So based on uh, different criteria, who should you reach out to first? And then how do you reach out to these people to maximize not just anyone, the chance that not just anyone responds, but that the right kind of person responds. Okay. So is this where the boosters, obligates, and curmudgeons come in? Indeed they do. All contacts are not created equal. So I tell job seekers that they can expect to hear from one of three different segments of contacts. So often the most common complaint I'll hear from job seekers is people never get back to me. I reach out for informational meetings and they never get back to me. And I agree, some people will never get back to you. And these are the people I call curmudgeons. They're awful people. They hate babies. They kick puppies. They're just the worst. Or they're delightful people who just have no interest in helping you find a job. They're not the worst segment you encounter because they're clear about not being helpful. They just ignore you. The, the worst segment is the second segment, a group I call obligates. Obligates want to appear to be helpful, but they don't actually want to be helpful. So they do things like respond slowly. And sometimes, sometimes they'll respond, sometimes they won't. They'll set up a meeting with you, but then cancel at the last minute. You'll ask them for actual advice and they'll get very noncommittal. Oh, just keep doing what you're doing and something will turn up. They're dangerous because they act out of a sense of obligation. They don't really want to be there, but they want to do just enough to appear like they're being a good person. So they will lead you astray. They will give you a negative return on effort versus a zero return on effort like curmudgeons do. The vast majority of help you get in the job search process comes from that third segment, a group I call boosters. They say things like, if you ask me for my help, you automatically get 15 minutes of my time. They don't need to be sold on anything. They just need to know that you need help. Unfortunately, I would put them at about 15 to 20% of the population out there. So you're going to have to kiss a lot of frogs to find your princes in this process. That said, the princes are very, very worth it. Absolutely. I think when you talk about efficiency in job search, right, it's not sitting there sending out all those resumes and applications into that black hole. It's working a system where you are finding advocates and having them sort of pave the way for you. So what is is it that we want advocates specifically to do for us? What are we hoping those boosters will offer? At heart, we want them to be our eyes and ears at that organization. We want them to be our traffic cop. Tell us what we need to do next, because guessing from the outside what we should do next isn't all that efficient. Someone with insider knowledge would be much more able to do that. But the best way to get that them to play traffic cop for us is through an informational meeting. So that's our next step. We want to request an informational meeting from them with the hopes that they will facilitate an internal referral to a colleague who knows more about potential job opportunities within that company. And that takes us to the third step of this process. Okay. And the third step involves that very efficient and well-crafted email, correct? Uh, the email is actually still part of the contact process. Ah, okay. So for that, that when you have identified potential contacts at a particular company of interest, that's when you reach out to them. The conventional wisdom in this space is to sell yourself. And I couldn't disagree with that more because you're asking a stranger to think about you without ever really expressing an interest in them. It's just a very jarring way to, I mean, we, how many uh, spam emails do we delete every day? Because 
Someone's trying to tell us to sell us something without knowing anything about us. I guess it would be creepy if they knew a lot of stuff about us and then tried to tell us to sell us something. The key takeaway here is don't try to sell strangers anything. Make them not be strangers first so that they actually want to hear what you have to say and are interested in helping you. So to do this in the two-hour job search, I teach something called the six-point outreach email, which is a very specifically crafted email to maximize the chance that we attract boosters rather than just anyone. And the way that we do that is by using social norms rather than market norms. Market norms are a concept where you sell yourself, but social norms uh, are a concept where you just ask for a favor. It's not going to work for everybody, but the people for whom it works are disproportionately likely to be boosters. And honestly, that email is so much easier to write because there's not that many ways to ask for a favor. Uh, how, what, what can you possibly say? However, when you're selling yourself, though, there's a million different ways to write a sales email. Which points about yourself are most compelling? What is this person going to, the stranger going to find most interesting about me? You don't know and you have no way of knowing. So asking for a favor is easier for the job seeker and it's more effective at, tracking, at attracting our target audience of boosters. Okay. The favor is, can we get on the phone for 15 minutes? I have some questions for you. I want to hear about your experience and walk us through that step of the process. Yeah. Can you give me the gift of your time and insight is essentially what we're doing. And these are very short emails. So they're, they're usually under between 50 and 75 words. They're pretty concise. There's no sales element. You're just very short and direct. Uh, but you give them a little bit of context about the other kinds of organizations that you're interested in so that they know their organization and their role is part of a coherent plan rather than just you flailing for any job or in response to any job posting you happen to see. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, I always think that over the course of a long and successful career, you will sometimes be the person who needs to be asking for favors, asking for people's time, asking for introductions. And at other times in your career, you will be the person on the receiving end of those emails and those requests. So hopefully there's some like nice karma going on here, but I always tell people, job seekers that are worried like, I hate asking for things. That's not comfortable for me. Um, This really is a cycle, right? This year you might be asking for things. Next year, people are going to be asking you for that. So it's a really natural part of having and building a network, I think, is that you are giving and you are taking at different times or maybe even at the same time. I think it's just a healthier way of living more generally. If you... You can do so much more when you have the help of others than you can just by yourself. So I would hope that, and I, and I see this a lot, the people who gain comfort asking for favors during their job search just find this kind of halo benefit to their actual lives when they're able to ask people to help them, to make their lives better. And that leads you to want to be involved in other people's lives and make their lives better. And it just, it makes for just a happier, healthier universe, especially during this time of isolation that we're all experiencing. I do think it just benefits everybody to get over this hangup about asking people for a favor, asking them for the gift of their time. We crave connection now more than perhaps ever before in our lifetimes, at least, maybe even in, in modern history given the, the current circumstances, at least we, you know, we have these wonderful tools in Zoom and, and the internet to connect with others. But the thought that we're afraid of imposing on another person, people can ignore us if they're not open to crafting a relationship with a stranger. But not only does the inability to ask for a favor hold you back in your job search, I think it just holds you back in terms of happiness more broadly. Furthermore, it'll hold you back in terms of how far you can get in your career, because at some point you're going to have to sell business, which means taking a stranger and turning them into a client, or get knowledge from someone else in your organization to get your job done, or get on different people's radars to advocate for you at promotion time within your current organization. It just really behooves people. And the sooner you learn that lesson, I wish it, I wish at informational meetings were something they taught at the grade school or high school level, because it's just truly maybe one of the only universal professional skills out there. And mm-hmm. yet... For as many of us take a speech class, so few of us take a listening class. And that just breaks my heart. Ah, good, good perspective on that. I love that. So you mentioned in the book, and I know you have maybe 
as you mentioned, softened on this a little bit, but that you often wait until you receive a second request from people in order to say, yes, I'll get on the phone with you and let's have that conversation. Tell me about that. Yeah, I think it depends on, uh, I think a lot of people start their careers as a booster. So a lot of people will think, Steve, if you wrote the two-hour job search, you must be a booster. And I used to be a booster. I think there's a natural life cycle of contacts that you'll experience. I think people start their careers expecting to be boosters and wanting to advocate for their friends, family, loved ones, acquaintances. But as soon as you advocate for the wrong person, because advocating for people doesn't mean, it does mean incurring some risk. You are expending some social capital to vouch for someone within your organization. And when you vouch for a person who doesn't follow through on what they say they're going to do, or they just disappear, or they're unprofessional, you start becoming more careful with your social capital. You want to see a little bit more skin in the game, and you want to see a little bit more proof that, uh, that a person's going to follow through with what they want. That's why following up is just so important in the outreach process. So in the two-hour job search, I talk about this approach called the, the 3B7 routine which basically ensures that you follow up on your outreach requests. You ask for the gift of a person's time, but you recognize people are busy. So if they don't get back to you within a week and a half, you've programmed a reminder in your calendar to follow up with them. That said, it's a bad sign if they don't respond within three business days, because most people who are going to be boosters and helpful in your search are going to respond quickly. So that three business day reminder that you also set in your calendar whenever you reach out to a perfect stranger that's your signal to try somebody else. Try a second person in parallel with that first one if you have not yet heard back from. Three business days is too soon to follow up on somebody who hasn't responded yet, but it's long enough to let you know that this person's not urgently prioritizing your job search. So let's break off and try a second person at the same time. That way you ensure that you never lose more than three business days to any person who's never going to respond to you. But it's critical that you still follow up with them and show that you're a responsible job seeker in this process by following up with them seven business days later, which is about a week and a half. Now, for me, this helps put any potential boosters that don't respond right away at ease that you genuinely are, are in this for real. You're not just wanting to make this connection as long as it's easy for you, uh, but it ensures that you keep moving along the way. So I think it's less important that you diagnose whether a person's a booster or an obligate or a curmudgeon at the moment of, of emailing them and more important that you work at scale, that you're reaching out to many people in a very, very strategic, methodical fashion. Just like you, you can't guarantee success in any single coin flip. You can't ensure that any single coin flip will come up heads. But if you know, you know if you keep flipping the coin, eventually it will come up heads. That's the same mentality we need to take. I love the idea of the follow-up and the precision with the amount of time because I do think as a job seeker, you can waste a lot of time just in the indecision of, should I follow up? Has it been long enough? Has it been too long? Do they forget about me? Am I harassing them if I, if I send the email today? And your system with the calendar reminders and a really specific set of actions to take on each day just is actually a huge time saver just because you don't even have to think about it anymore, right? Your calendar. You don't even need to think of these people as being real people. You can think of them as being lottery tickets with 20% <laughs> odds of success. And not until they respond to you, do you have to, then, then you can internalize the fact that they're real people. But other than that, it's just easier to divorce yourself from the localized, is this person going to respond? Why didn't they respond? I've seen people burn themselves out over the period of like two or three weeks debating themselves every night, should I follow up or shouldn't I? And none of that was productive effort. They're exhausted by the end of it and they have nothing to show for it except anxiety. So it, it uses this concept of temporal construal theory. I, I like to root as much of the two-hour job search in science as I can, and this is one of my favorite concepts, temporal construal theory states that we make higher order decisions in advance than we do in the heat of the moment. So if you plan, if you decide that you're going to order salad at a restaurant before you go to the restaurant and see the menu, you're more likely to stick to that than when once you see the menu. Oh, let me see what's on the menu first, and then I'll decide that I want to have a salad. Because before you go to the restaurant, you're thinking about body image. How happy am I going to be with the decision that I make at dinner tonight? And it's so much easier to get swept up in these shorter order concerns of taste, flavor profile, like excitement when you're at the restaurant. Now, there's a time and place for both. But as job seekers, 
you need to use temporal construal theory to your advantage. You're make you're thinking more clearly in advance of that decision of what happens if they don't respond within seven business days. You're thinking more clearly when you send the email than after they've ignored you for a week and a half, when you can always find a reason to talk yourself out of following up that night. That's just leading you to weeks of self-debate, which don't lead anywhere. Anywhere good anyway. Yeah. All right. That makes a ton of sense because as you send those emails out, you're not all that emotionally attached to them, but the more you maybe wait for a response to come back, the more emotionally invested you get in in that response and that person. So I have emailed people. I've got these fantastic boosters who have responded and said, hey, Katie, I'll get on the phone with you. Oh my gosh, what do I do now? Ask them in a number of different ways why they're so good at their job. In a nutshell, that's really what we're doing here. If you imagine that you and they are both consultants, their billing rate is so much higher than yours because they have the job you want. They're probably senior to you, like one or two levels above where you would start ideally. They, anytime they are speaking, you're essentially making money. Anytime you are speaking, you're essentially losing money because you've got this consultant whose billing rate is higher and you're doing the talking. That is completely wrong. The right time to talk about yourself is when asked. So there's this wonderful phrase, interested is interesting. There is no quicker way to make someone interested in you than to be genuinely interested in them. The funny thing about that is so many people, so much of people's paranoia about informational meetings is, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say about myself. Like, how do I sell myself? How do I convince this stranger to be impressed by me? Don't try to impress them at all. Impress them by how well you you use their time. That's the easiest way to impress them. So be egoless in this conversation. You want to talk about yourself as little as possible and wait until they become interested in you. Then you can talk about yourself, but not before that. To manage this process, I teach something called the Tiara Framework, which basically gives people another algorithm that they can follow. It's a conversation algorithm that starts off framing this, this total stranger as an expert in their field and slowly shifts the frame of the questions that you ask to portray them as a mentor as we get deeper into the conversation, maximizing the chance that this conversation will lead to advocacy and eventually an internal referral over the course of the coming days and weeks. And Tiara, what does that stand for? Uh, so Tiara, it, it is absolutely an acronym rather than just a, a name I made up. Yeah, well, thank you. I, I was shocked when it actually came together that way. So Tiara stands for Trends, Insights, Advice, Resources, and Assignments. So in general, what I want job seekers to do is have one question ready for each one of those topics and then plan on asking at least as many follow-up questions as original Tiara questions. Research shows that follow-up questions are particularly are perceived to be particularly likable. So when a person gives you an answer and you ask a follow-up question on it, that is the quickest route to let, letting them know that you're listening and genuinely engaged in what they have to say. A common mistake job seekers will make is they immediately get an answer, they get an answer to an informational meeting question and they immediately move to a new question, which subtly implies to your, the person you're speaking to that you didn't find their answer all that interesting and that you potentially weren't even really listening. You're just trying to get through all of the questions that you had written down in advance and I hope to in the hopes of impressing them with the questions that you fired their way but didn't really listen to their responses to. So Tiara just makes it, I, again, I, I consider it a listening algorithm more than a questioning algorithm. When you know the, the questions you're going to ask, it just makes it much easier for you to listen with purpose, to listen actively so that you can focus on what's, what additional information would I like based on the new information that they just, just presented me spend less time thinking of what am I going to say next and more time thinking, do I genuinely understand what they're telling me? Is there anything I'm curious about that I would like more information on? Or do I just need to keep them talking on this topic until they give me more substantive material that I can ask a follow-up question about? All right. That's great. You mentioned curiosity. I think that's like one of the most sort of attractive features you can display in a call like this, right? You, as you said, you listen and you're curious. And so you're, you're asking, you know, tell me more about that. How does that work? How did that happen? Right. That's, it's flattering to people when you have a follow-up because it, like you said, indicates you are, you hear them and you're interested. You want more. 
That is the unifying theme of TR questions. Good TR questions are both flattering and fun to answer. So you're not going to ask them about recent layoffs because that's not flattering. And you're not going to ask them what are the the what what is what is the corporate culture like at your firm? Because that's not fun to answer. That's a, the person you're speaking to is now trying to remember what's on the website, what are the eight pillars of excellence that our company likes to talk about. They're not experts on the company, they're experts on themselves and their own experience within the company. So it's important to remember that. Let people talk about things they're experts on, which is their own opinion, their own take, their own perspective. So by asking for their perspective and then asking them to draw the most powerful example of this, or their mo- what is their favorite part of the corporate culture, by bringing them to a decision that will get you out of that dangerous loop where everybody's just laundry listing and working from memory and nobody's really having a very good time. <laughs> yeah, you do want, you want them to have a good time, right? You want them to hang up the phone and think, wow, that person used my time well and was really fun to talk to. Yeah, it, it, it ensures that you can ask 10 people the same, same series of questions and get completely different answers all 10 times. Yeah. Because everybody's going to have a different perspective and a different opinion. And, and in totality, all 10 of those perspectives are correct and they will help you form a mosaic picture of what it's really like to have this job or to work in that company. I think it really just facilitates a better, more sophisticated understanding of the organizations as well. Yeah, good point. Do you think it's appropriate on a call like that to share some information? If you've done 10 calls with people who work in big tech companies, you're learning a lot, right? And so, like you said, you're building this mosaic. You've got this picture in your mind of all these puzzle pieces sort of that you've put together. And so, not that you would be sharing information that obviously shouldn't be shared, but just to say, you know, hey, I yesterday I was talking to somebody who works at Google, and and here's how they're approaching this, um, like in a sense of you given you're giving me a lot of information, and I I actually know something I could share that might be helpful to you too. That's the ideal. As you have more of these conversations when to insert that kind of information becomes intuitive. But I find there is a common mistake when people go in planning on making points like that, they get so fixated on conveying the knowledge they have that they stop listening to the knowledge this person's imparting to them. So for me, no, the the point of the conversation is always to learn as much as you possibly can. There will be organic moments where you share the knowledge you have. Maybe you even work it into the question that you ask instead of saying what what trends are most impacting your space right now? What, what trend is most impacting your business right now? You can say in my research, I know that the fluctuating price in oil is making marketers overhaul their distribution to save on fuel costs. Is that a trend that's also impacting you or is another trend impacting you more seriously? So you can, you can make these questions a little bit more sophisticated without changing the fact that at heart, you're asking them, why are you so good at your job? Uh, in a way where they have complete freedom to answer in whatever direction that they want or whatever they find that is most compelling. But I'm very wary of trying to do any sort of, uh, accomplish any sort of sales objective with these calls because it just takes you out of the moment of learning and, and, and gives you a dual goal. And people just generally don't do well having two simultaneous goals. They do much better just having one pure goal. Okay. So at the end of the call, you hang up and it's a success if what? Good question. So my recommendation, a lot of people are, are very, I, I disagree with the conventional wisdom that you should ask for a referral at the end of these conversations. You're putting this contact at risk of losing face. Plus the way that I coach people with the six point email to ask for informational meetings re, re, revolves around asking for insight and advice, not job leads. So if you end the call by asking for job leads, who you should speak to next, not only do you bait and switch them. And now the, the purpose of your email is proven to be false, but you're also putting them at risk of losing face because they like, if they're anything like me, they would not give you a person's name to speak to next without first checking to, with that person that it's okay that they share their name with a job seeker. Asking in real time is never a good bet. In my opinion, my recommendation is ask it in the resources category. You ask a different question. What resources do you recommend I look into next? That's code. It's a high context way of asking if they're comfortable giving you a referral at this point in time. And if they are, they'll volunteer it. But if they're not, they'll ask you, what sort of resources are you looking for? Which is your signal to just ask them what, what's the most important 10 minutes of research they do in a given day to stay current on their industry? Or what conferences do they prioritize attending each year to learn more and stay at the top of their game? 
But the goal is to get a referral. Make no mistake. The goal of this conversation is to get a referral to someone else who knows more about hiring within that organization because you are guessing from the outside who might know the most, who might be most willing to help me find a decision maker. So if they don't offer one during the live call, you're not going to ask them for one, nor are you going to ask for one in your thank you note the next day that you would send within 24 hours. You would, however, set yourself a reminder for a week after that call and ask for a referral then and saying something like, upon further reflection, this is definitely something I'd like to pursue further. How would you go about doing that if you were me? For example, can you recommend someone I should speak to next? So I find that the best way to close these informationals is to say, wow, you've given me a lot to think about. I'm going to take the weekend to reflect. Is it okay if I reach back out to you with any additional questions? To which almost everybody says yes. But it's critical that you set that reminder to not only send the thank you note that night or the next day, but to follow up with them a week later and make that request by email when it's less threatening and when they know that you've sincerely reflected on what they've had to tell you. Slow is smooth and smooth is fast is is kind of is a, a concept from the military. Don't worry about always closing. It just isn't effective. This is not a sales process. This is a, a relationship building process, which is kind of the opposite of sales in my opinion, uh, or at least sales as, as it is traditionally viewed. So don't worry about making quick progress. Worry about making systematic progress over a larger population of candidates simultaneously. Okay, good point. This is a relationship process. That's a really, really important point there. When we think about this sort of strange new world we're living in where everybody is working from home and we're not having coffee with people anymore, we're just chatting over Zoom or phone calls. Is this a process that, works effectively in a situation like we're in now? As I told you earlier, the the two-hour job search was developed during the financial crisis of 2008. It was my exact recipe for how do you find a job if you've never looked for a job before? Well, a career coach should probably be the one to answer that question rather than a random job seeker who's doing this for the first time. Oddly, I came out with this brand new edition that removed references to the 2008 financial crisis and it came out right when we were entering a new and unprecedented financial crisis. But honestly, it works. It, it was built for a time exactly like this. It was built for a recessionary period. It just happened to work really well in a, in a boom period as well. But people didn't have to follow it as closely to be successful. They just, even getting partway down the path, people were getting snatched up with jobs. So I think people who used the two-hour job search over the past few years may have developed, may have not practiced it with complete fidelity, but were completely successful with it. In a recessionary period like this one, it is critical that people follow the recipe precisely. Every step is there for a reason. So while things like following up on a six-point outreach email that didn't get responded to, that stuff could be forgiven two years ago because the economy was so hot. Nowadays, it's, it's essential. People are, have twice as much email as they did three months ago. So it's critical that you give them a second chance to respond to you. They may genuinely want to, but they're so overwhelmed with the email because of our, our face-to-face connection ability has been taken away. So no, I would argue that a two-hour job search is more effective vis-a-vis not using the two-hour job search now than it was six months ago. And that's, that's the critical perspective. It's, the two-hour job search has remained successful throughout the last decade, but it is even more successful than any alternative that you can come up with. That's really what the two-hour job search is about. It's about maximizing your return on effort. So for every hour you put into your job search, I want to get you the maximum amount of benefit from that hour as I can. So many people have poured that hour of effort into online job postings, and maybe they've gotten away with it last year or three years ago. It's not going to work now. It it just simply will not work. Too many people are embracing that same approach, and there just aren't enough jobs to go around. To be successful in a recessionary job period means getting strangers to become your advocates. And that sadly is just something that's not taught in school. Yeah, good point. The other thing about our current environment is there are undoubtedly some people who are who have had to double down on the work because they're working from home and that's harder and they're juggling family and work. And so those people probably simply just don't have time to do the type of informational networking calls that we're talking about. But I also think there's got to be a percentage of the population out there who is now working from home instead of being in the office and has a little more flexibility with how they use their time. And maybe in the past, they wouldn't have been able to take a call midday that wasn't completely related to the work at hand. 
but now they can. So there really can be some opportunity in this if you are faithfully following the system and reaching out and finding those right people. Hopefully job seekers are finding that. Yeah, everybody's job just got a lot harder this year. And I think we're all finding that even our existing jobs, even if they didn't suddenly get harder, we're getting less done because of just having to change environments, having less access to the other decision makers that we need to get in touch with to get things done. Just And we're in front of screens all the time, which is depleting, uh, kind of at heart. So there is a certain appeal to it, a segment of the population of just having a phone call where all you get to do is talk about why you're so good at your job. There's an there's appeal to that. We need human connection now more than ever. So the chance to hear from somebody who's just going to appreciate the work that you can do rather than lean on you to get more of it done in less time because we've got to, we've got to adapt to this new world where the rules are constantly changing. I mean, that is exhausting. But to just get to talk about yourself positively for half an hour has its appeal now, uh, maybe even more so than in the past. The pandemic is not an excuse to not try to job search or to not build relationships. And yes, maybe the sectors you're targeting are not really hiring right now. That doesn't mean you can't build the relationships so that they're ready to advocate for you as soon as those jobs open back up because they will open up at a certain point. And yes, the people who've done that exact job before, but somewhere else might be first in line to take those jobs. But as soon as those people have all been hired to whatever roles they, they want to go back to, you're at the top of the pile for all of those future roles. So it will get better. There is simply no better use of your time than developing additional sets of eyes and ears looking on your behalf. Well said. All right, let's talk results. Tell us some of the cool feedback you've heard from people following the system, getting great jobs. I mean, what what continues to startle me is that there is no consensus favorite uh, part of the two-hour job search. It's kind of an anthology. It's it's three, the, the three components of it can be used in a vacuum apart from one another, but when used together, they're just especially powerful. So some people are, are huge fans of the lamp list. Some people are big fans of boosters, obligates, and curmudgeons. Other people are fans of tiara, which is delightful to me that everybody who, everybody struggles with a different part of the job search. Some people struggle with getting organized. Other people struggle with the talking to strangers pieces. So there's something really in there for everybody. What I would say my favorite success stories are the ones who, of people who developed a swagger that they didn't have before. Once you get over the hump of asking strangers for a favor, you realize it can't hurt you anymore. There's nothing to be scared of. I find that once people do three informational meetings using Tiara, like they're comfortably bored by the process. They find that they're fun chats. They learn how to get people to open up more quickly and more effectively. I think my favorite of all time recently, somebody wrote a review of the, the revised edition about how they were the last person in their, their MBA class to find a job, but they used the two-hour job search and they were the only person in their class to land a job in venture capital, which is a very, very sought after, hard to land in sector for, for people leaving business schools. And I love that. I think campus recruiting is, is great for people to find a job, but for people who are really have a dream job in mind, there's typically a great more demand than there is supply for those jobs. And that absolutely revolves around gaining advocacy. So I, I think that's my favorite, most recent story. One of my other favorite stories that is illustrative of the importance of having a relationship-based strategy is, is from uh, somebody I, I met after a talk who had applied for a major consulting firm didn't hear back, found the two-hour job search and started applying the concepts of reaching out for informational meetings, got some people on the phone. One of them referred them to a friend. That, that friend referred them to another person. They got an interview. They interviewed for the job. They advanced the final rounds, interviewed again, got the job offer, accepted the job. And the day after they accepted the job, they got the automated email response in response to their online application saying, "We thank you. This is a very competitive pool this year and we regret that we can't invite you in for an interview. Literally, this person was two separate candidates, the online candidate and the in-person candidate. And I think that's just so instructive to know as a job seeker. Like when you apply online, you are not really even a person. But when you have a person who recommends you, suddenly exceptions get made for you all over the place. It's just much a much more fun way to go about this process than continually knowing that you're screaming into a void. Every time you throw a resume into an online job posting, you know you're never going to hear back, but you don't know what else to do. It's just a, it's a soul-crushing way to live. 
So yeah. I think those are a couple of my favorite stories. The the same person, two different candidates story and the um, last to land, but got the best job story. I love that. I love that same person, two different candidates. That's incredible. But you're right. That is just, it just proves the point, right? That there's two ways to go about this. And here's a result that one side will get you. You'll get the automated letter and pursuing it the other way is hopefully going to lead to some much better outcomes. If you build relationships, you learn along the way, your, your odds steadily improve over time because these eyes and ears looking out on your behalf continue to look on your behalf so you can get more and more of them. Whereas if you spent that same amount of time applying online, like if you don't hear back from that job posting, you've wasted that effort. You have nothing to show for it. It's the difference between fishing for fish and fishing for lobster. When you fish for fish and you put bait on a hook, you throw the hook in the water, fish swim up and you have dinner or they don't swim up and you're right back where you started tomorrow. You don't have any credit that you can benefit, uh, that you can give to your account for having tried all day today. But when you fish for lobster, they don't swim up to hooks. You buy cages that you bait and you leave them in the water. You check them every day or two to see if you caught anything. And you never know with certainty that any particular lobster cage will ever catch you a lobster. But you do know with certainty the more cages you have in the water, the better your odds are of catching a lobster eventually. The job search is so much more like looking for lobster than looking for fish. So don't take a a fishing mentality, take a lobster mentality. Each advocate that you find will be there for you next month. They will continue to add benefit for you. So the more advocates you find, the closer you get every day of your job search. It's just a matter of when, not if. Ah, that is a great note to end on. And we've covered lasagna, salad, fish. <laughs> Can you tell I haven't had dinner yet? Yeah. <laughs> and so we're both very hungry. <laughs> but that's fantastic. I love this. I've always been a huge fan of the system. It's just so impressive. It works. It works. Just bottom line, it works. So thank you for developing this amazing system. I can only imagine the hundreds and thousands of people who have used this to success. And thank you so much for joining me today to share with our listeners your two-hour job search. Well, thanks for your kind words and for this opportunity. Absolutely. All right, folks, the book is called The Two-Hour Job Search. It's by Steve Dalton. Can you share with us where people can find you online, the LinkedIn group? Where can we get the book? Absolutely. The the book is available at... uh, Uh, Amazon.com, any other online retailer, and physical bookstores if those ever open again. You can find me at the twohourjobsearch.com or the LinkedIn group is called the Two Hour Job Search Q&A Forum. Free to join. Again, there's 5,000 of us. So join the discussion, see what questions are on other people's minds, and let me know if you have any questions yourself. Thank you so much, Steve. And job seekers, now that you know there is an efficient and effective process out there for you to follow getting a job, Go do it. I believe in you. Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Get a Job, Here's How podcast. You can find all the information from this episode in our show notes at www.backtobusinessconference.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please write a review so that we can reach more people. Now that you know how, go do it.